Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And as I just mentioned, we're picking up with a new hypothesis, number 34. And over these past weeks, we've been speaking about the uh, the practice of asceticism, what that looks looked like for, for the monks and how it was embraced, and in particular in relationship to the, their spiritual elder and how it wasn't taken up as something that they would uh, do on their own, but always under uh, the guidance of another who had an experiential knowledge of the ascetic life and uh, so that it always might be measured and done with wisdom. And... Uh, the authors begin to make a segue now into, the, in particular, the practice of obedience, what that looked like for the monks. And it'll be our task, certainly, to read it as deeply as we can and uh, to consider what that means for those of us living within the world. How it is that we live out our faith in the life of the church and in our day-to-day -day life, our particular vocations, uh, in, in the spirit of the obedience of Christ in particular. Uh, that their lives are meant to direct us toward him and to reflect upon what we see in his obedience to the Father. And so again, we're on page 296 from St. Gregory the Diologist, and, or Gregory the Great. Once when St. Benedict was keeping silence in a cell, his disciple, Placidus, went to the lake, as the locals call it, to draw water. However, the vessel with which he was going to draw the water fell from his hands and was washed away by the movement of the water. In his attempt to snatch the pitcher from the current, Placidus slipped and fell into the waters himself. He was carried off by the waters to the middle of the lake, about an arrow shot away. But St. Benedict, the man of God, who, as we said, was keeping silence in his cell, knew what had happened to Placidus, and after summoning Maurus, his disciple, he said to him, run, brother Maurus, because brother Placidus has fallen into the lake, and the current of water has carried him a long way. On hearing the order of his spiritual father, Maurus set off on a, at a run, and when he reached the scene of the accident, he saw that Placidus had indeed been carried off a long way by the current of the water. Without, with unhesitating faith and resting his courage on the prayers of his spiritual father, Mars walked onto the waters and ran as if he were treading on dry land until he reached Placidus, who had been carried off by the current of the waters. After grabbing him by the hair of his head, he dragged him over, to the, over the water, walking in the same way until he reached dry land. Only then did Mars come to his senses and realize that he had been running on the water and that his feet, uh, I'm sorry, and that this feat was not his own, since it would have been completely impossible for him to achieve this had not the prayer of his miracle-working father supported him. He marveled and trembled at what had occurred, and on returning to his father, recounted to him the tremendous miracle that had happened. St. Benedict did not ascribe this miracle to his own sanctity, but to the obedience of Morris. Morris objected that the abbot's command had accomplished the miracle, for he maintained he did not feel in his soul the power that he had when he was walking on the waters. In the meantime, the monk Placidus, who had been attentively following the God-imitating and humble speech of these two men, 
and their affectionate dispute intervened and said, when I was being dragged from the deep where the current had pulled me to dry land, I saw above my head the cloak of my Abba, St. Benedict, and felt him pulling me from the waters. So a beautiful little story uh, uh, to begin with, and which I hadn't read until reading the Evergatinos. And, um, and we are given this vision of, of obedience and uh, the fruit and the power uh, of obedience in the lives of these men. Uh, that it draws one uh, into a deeper relationship with Christ through conformity to his obedience to his, father will, his father's will. And we've heard this before, as those who, uh, uh, who follow the obedience of Christ being described as confessors of the faith, that they bear witness in this powerful way uh, to Christ by imitating him so fully. And so both of these men, Benedict and certainly also the disciple, Morris, uh, were perfect in their obedience uh, to God. And in and through uh, the uh, intercession of Benedict, but also of the obedience of Morris, uh, Placidus is, is saved. Do I have that right or did I mix them up? It was, yeah, Placidus is saved. And so, you know, he is the one in the end that confirms that it was the, the hand of Benedict uh, through his intercession that had saved him. Uh, but this dispute arises between the two of them as to who, who's responsible for it. And so we see both obedience and, and humility uh, active here. Um, but I, I think the point that's being put forward for us is that uh, obedience is not simply a, a slavishness to the will of another, nor is it disconnected from the relationship that exists between disciple and master. As we've talked about before, that there is a kind of intimacy here, intimacy here, uh, a deep love that each has for the other, uh, and the desire on the part of the disciple to be obedient, as we'll see in uh, subsequent stories, uh, but also the deep love and sense of responsibility that the master has for his disciple and his care. So what is asked of the servant or of, of the disciple is always with his sanctification in view, even if it is harsh or demanding or requires something such as this that is even miraculous, that he would uh, put his own life in danger in order to save the other disciple. Okay. Any comments on this little story from the life of St. Benedict? Okay. From the life of St. Theodosius. Others, oh, uh, Bridget has a question or comment. St. Hezekias in the Philoclea states, a faithful servant is one who expresses his faith in Christ through obedience to his commandments. Father, if one cannot find an elder, can one be assured of the graces and gifts of obedience by simply following the commandments? I, I would say absolutely yes. You know, our fidelity to Christ, to his teaching, to the commandments, uh, all of these are put before us uh, by the church itself the, and by Christ himself. And so our fidelity to them is the fulfillment of obedience. 
And uh, we are fortunate to have the elders accessible to us that we might see how that's embraced in one's life in a very concrete and tangible way. But as you say, if we lack someone uh, to guide us in, in, the, in the spiritual life, uh, if we lack access, we always have access to the fathers, but most certainly to Christ himself. And for us, truth is a person and the one who's going to be the greatest guide for us is the spirit of truth that, that dwells within, within our own hearts and the voice of our conscience. And so when we begin to think about what does it look like for us to live the life of obedience in the world, it's certainly fidelity to our particular vocation, uh, the path that God has called us to walk upon. But in a more fundamental way, it is being uh, obedient to the voice of our conscience that often rebukes us uh, when we stray from the path of the gospel or from the path of Christ, and also obedience to that spirit of truth that has been given to us and that searches the depths of our hearts. And we are told within the scriptures that will guide us into the fullness of the truth. And so Christ has given us uh, the most sure gift and sure guide uh, in the spiritual life. And we are to cultivate hearts uh, that are truly obedient and love obedience. And this is the more challenging thing for us. I think part of this is accomplished through many of the other things that we've talked about, uh, leading uh, a life that is ordered and directed toward God, uh, that we are immersed in the scriptures, that we have thought, sought through the ascetic life to order our desires and our appetites towards God, that we fill the mind and the heart with things that reflect the beauty of Christ and of his teachings, that all of these things begin to shape a heart that can be conformed to Christ and to his will. And uh, so despite not having an elder you know, God is not going to leave us wanting, that he will provide for what is lacking in that regard and provide in abundance. So I don't think it's ever anything that we have to worry about. I think when we look through uh, church history, you know, certainly we're, we're not the only time where perhaps it was very difficult to find uh, faithful spiritual guides. Letter B, from the life of St. Theodosius. Since the great Theodosius, the Cenobiarch, knew that for those who chose to live according to God, nothing else so contributed to their acquisition of virtue and its preservation once they had acquired it as the remembrance of death. What did he do? He gave permission to his disciples to dig a grave to remind them, on the one hand, of death, and on the other hand, to make them more persistent in spiritual struggles and to spur their zeal more strongly towards virtue. At the same time, this was done that the grave might receive them when they died. Apart from all of this, however, he had foreseen something of the future and was making provisions for it. As soon as the grave had been prepared, St. Theodosius stood above it with his disciples all around him. Then foreseeing with penetrating eye of his mind what was going to happen, he turned to his disciples and said to them, ostensibly in jest, 
The grave is now ready, but who among you will be the one to inaugurate it? In this way, Theodosius the Great concealed by means of levity his delight at what he foresaw. Indeed, a certain hieromonk named Basil, who manifestly demonstrated in his zeal for the good and by his likeness and virtue, that he had all the patristic marks of distinction so obvious in his spiritual father. Just as natural children show evidence of their parents in the flesh by their physical features, surmise that his teacher was not dropping a hint without some purpose. For this reason, ready and eager to be chosen for death, as if it were something not undesirable, but rather beneficial and profitable, immediately seized the initiative and knelt before his spiritual father, such that his head touched the ground, and said, Bless, Father, for your sake, I will be the first to inaugurate the grave. Basil made the request, and Theodosius granted it. Basil was then placed alive in the grave, and Father Theodosius ordered all the customary rites for the repose to be served for him. That is, memorial services on the third, the ninth, and thereafter the fortieth day. When the period of 40 days had come to an end, Basil, without feeling any pain in his head or anywhere else in his body, and without being overcome by fever of any kind, departed for the Lord as if he were sleeping a sweet and gentle sleep, receiving for his obedience and his eagerness to pass over into eternity, a sure sign of those who take no delight in worldly things, the prized honor of being the first of his brothers to appear before God and to re receive his crown. During the ensuing 40 days, at precisely the time that the hymns of Vespers were being chanted, the divine Basil appeared amidst the sacred choir of his disciples, himself chanting as well. Theodosius the Great both saw and heard him. None of the others saw his figure or heard him except one Atios, who followed in his footsteps uh, of his teacher and who was a disciple of Theodosius the Great, not only because he knew and related his feats, but also by virtue of desiring to imitate them. This Etios did not see Basil's figure, but did hear his voice. He thus asked the teacher whether he himself could hear the dead man's voice. Not only do I hear him, replied St. Theodosius, but I also see his figure, and if you want, I will point him out to you at the time he appears. In fact, as the night progressed and the service came to an end, the man of God saw Basil very clearly, standing and singing with the chanters. He then pointed him out to Atheos with his finger, while at the same time he besought God, saying, Open his eyes also, O Lord, that he may see this great mystery of thy mighty works. Seeing Basil, Atheos recognized him and ran to him, desiring to embrace him. But at the moment, Basil not only became untouchable, but also disappeared, after having said only this with the, within the hearing of all. May you be saved, my fathers and brothers. May you be saved. You will no longer see me. In this way, what the Lord said in the gospel is proved to be most true and most trustworthy. He that believeth in me, 
though he were dead, yet shall he live. So another lengthy, but again, quite beautiful story of an obedient soul who is not only responsive to his elder, uh, but is able to, to pick up in the midst of the jest, the deeper truth that was being put forward, that one of them was going to die and that Theodosius was having this grave uh, dug not only out of obedience and to help them to reflect upon the reality of death, uh, but aware of what was going to happen. And so with this obedience that was lacking all fear, uh, he sets himself down before Theodosius in order to offer himself, as it were, to inaugurate the grave. Uh, Desert Fathers have an odd sense of humor. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, it, it uh, comes, comes to be and in a kind of glorious way. And I think it, this story speaks to us in a number of different ways. I think both to... Uh, the power and the joy uh, that is to be found in obedience, that this was not a hardship for them, especially knowing the, the love, but also the, the witness, the personal witness of Theodosius. They had the constant uh, witness before them of one who was living radically the life of the gospel and a life of holiness. And so without fear or hesitation, in particular, his disciple was able to, with, without a second thought, kneel down in this act of obeisance, putting his head all the way to the ground at the feet of the master to offer himself. And the fruit of this is uh, the ability to, to pass from this world, not with any sorrow, uh, but was clearly seeing that it was to his advantage to be to be with Christ. And so far from fearing it, he's able to uh, embrace it and almost embrace it with a kind of excitement and anticipation. Uh, we hear something similar in the writing of Paul, you know, that he reaches a point where there is a longing uh, to leave this world to be with Christ. Uh, and yet, in a, again, in a similar uh, spirit of obedience, uh, desires to do whatever the Lord wills, to stay and to continue to bear witness to him or to suffer for him or to be taken immediately from this life. And that the, the latter is, was the preferred uh, option. And uh, I think in our day and age, it's, it may be a little bit hard, certainly, to wrap our minds around this kind of obedience, but even this view of death, uh, not only is something to remind us of our mortality, and so, so to lead us to take our lives more seriously in, in the sense of embracing the gospel, uh, but also that we might not fear it, that we might see it as something that ultimately now uh, that and that brings us into the embrace of the beloved. And so that we would live out our lives with a kind of urgent longing for Christ and that our taking up of our ascetical practices and our pursuit of the virtue would be filled with this desire for union and communion with him. And so asceticism 
if it is embraced in the proper spirit, uh, should be something that is shaped by joy. And uh, it shouldn't, you know, when we take up the fast and we, when we deepen our prayers, you know, it should not be with a, a heavy heart uh, or a kind of gloominess, but rather with this uh, joy that comes from uh, the embrace of these practices in a deeper way that uh, also deepen that longing for Christ. And, uh, and so powerful, again, another powerful story. Anthony writes, this is in stark contrast with the pagans, example, the fear of the adventures of Ulysses and the trip to Hades, land of the shades. Right, you know, that, uh, you know, death no longer holds us in the grip of fear, uh, but now becomes in and through Christ, a passage into something far greater. And uh, this is why we can celebrate the, the feast of the, the martyrs who even underwent the greatest of tortures, uh, knowing that what is held out to them is, is something far greater. That the eternal life and love that is held before us make the sacrifices that we make, whether it's in the uh, kind of white martyrdom of the ascetical life or of truly shedding one's blood for Christ, seem as if it is nothing. The Coptic hymn to St. George names him the conqueror of his tormentors. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Any other thoughts so far? Okay. Now from the Gerontcon, no, I'm sorry, letter C, from the life of St. Theodora, Near the monastery where the blessed Theodora led her ascetic life, there was a lake, and this lake lurked a crocodile, which immediately devoured whatever came close to it, whether man or small or large animal. So dangerous did this evil become for those who lived in the vicinity that Gregory, the prefect of Alexandria, stationed soldiers in that place to prevent the wayfarers who used to pass through there from approaching the lake. Knowing well the kind of life Theodora led, that it fell only a little short of being a match for that of the angels, and that as a result of this, Theodora would not be lacking her share of divine grace, the abbot of the monastery sent for her. Theodora, my child, he said, Theodora, my child, he said to her, for she lived in the monastery as a man. Taking the take the pitcher and go and fetch us water from the lake near here. Theodora, who was familiar with the apostolic injunction that we should obey those who have rule over us, hastened to carry out this order. Although many urged her to flee from that place because she would otherwise be killed by the beast, resting her courage on her faith in God and putting into practice the work of obedience, which, obedience, which only brings life and never causes death. She evaded all who were impeding her and entered the lake. There, O oh, thy wondrous works, O oh Lord, they saw the beast carrying her on its back and saw her taking water and filling the pitcher that she was holding in her hands. And when she had finished, they saw her coming back again to dry land on the beast's back. 
In this way, Theodore was brought safety, safely to dry land without suffering anything. But the beast, after it had been rebuked by Theodora, paid the just penalty for all that it had done hitherto and fell dead on the spot. This event was very quickly spread around to others, but those who had seen it with their own eyes and wanted to gladden those who had not, and all gave thanks to God for Theodora's accomplishment. So this may sound, you know, certainly fantastical to us as often some of the hagiographical stories of the saints do. Uh, but if I think we were to step back and again, to think about it in a discerning way, what, what does this say to us about living in the, the spirit of, of obedience? And what are uh, the beast, as it were, that threaten us and threaten others? And uh, I think in our minds, you know, our, our thoughts should uh, quickly turn to the demons that would draw us into sin or tempt us into sin and into a greater death than physical death, but spiritual death. And so our obedience uh, lifts us above uh, the, the dangers uh, that these beasts, as it were, uh, uh, bring to us in our day-to-day -day life. So our fidelity to the gospel, to the teachings of Christ, and to the spiritual elder, uh, where we do set aside our will for that which is the greater good, the love of Christ, is something that is meant uh, to elevate us. And so, uh, again, I think we, we look to this story not to become focused upon uh, certainly that, that which is striking, the miraculous, but rather to keep our focus on the promise of obedience itself to protect us in the spiritual life. And this is why we are called to love it. I think our focus so often is on the letting go of our will, uh, precisely because we are so willful that we are focused upon uh, seeking out and uh, obtaining what we want, rather than seeking out and uh, fulfilling the will of God. And, uh, and it's for this reason that we often do not know the fruit of what we see here, which is pr protection from evil, uh, but also the, the fruit that this brings to us uh, on a whole host of other levels in regards to our struggle with the passions as a whole and a struggle against the demons that would afflict us through, through their trickery, which we've heard uh, described many times for us throughout these stories. And so, you know, I draw your attention back again to the etymology of the word obedience, ab adore, to hear, to listen. And uh, so what we are seeking to cultivate in our hearts is this capacity to listen on a very deep level and to hear the word that is coming to us and that speaks to the, the very depths of our heart and calls us in the direction that God desires for us. And we've talked often about the importance of silence in our capacity to hear that word and to hear it as God speaks to us, unimpeded, I think, by the, the distractions that often fill our mind. 
uh, we've gone back often to the Carthusians uh, statement that uh, silence allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself. And so allows us to open our minds and our hearts to receive in faith the word that God desires us to hear at any given moment and to respond to that word uh, and to respond in a spirit of obedience. And so as we enter into the, this holy season of Lent uh, and when we think about our disciplines and what we would want to be doing, it is cultivating the soil of our hearts that we might be able to hear that word and receive it. And also to cultivate our hearts in such a way that that seed might take root and uh, grow and flourish and produce fruit that is uh, pleasing to God, especially the fruit of repentance. Uh, if we remember in that story in the gospel, uh, three quarters of the time, the, the seed does not take root for one reason or another. It falls on rocky ground or it falls among thorns or it's stolen away by birds. Uh, and so our responsibility in the spiritual life and as we enter into a, a holy season such as this is to, to cultivate our hearts in a deeper way. And if, you know, our fasting uh, does not have this focus, then it really very quickly can be reduced to, to something that is uh, this exercise in endurance and hardship, you know, just depriving ourselves but if we are setting out to cultivate uh, this kind of receptivity uh, to God's word and God's will, then we are going through this fasting, seek also to cultivate a hunger for him. And so pair our fasting and our disciplines with a deepening of our prayer life, with the study of the scripture, with the study of the fathers, and other devotions that create that sense of urgency and desire for him within our hearts. And so we're called to begin well. And, you know, the Latin rite begins this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. The Eastern rites have already uh, begun the great fast. But we, we all want to begin this holy season well with this kind of clarity of mind and heart. And so in many ways... Uh, these stories and this hypothesis on obedience is a perfect place for us to begin. Well, what is it that we're seeking? What, what is the fruit uh, of, you know, our obedience to the uh, teachings of the church in regards to the Holy Fast and to the particular devotions that we are called to during this Holy Season? Latin rite, you know, it could be frequent mass, daily mass, participation in the stations of the cross, adoration, Eastern rites, uh, in particular, the liturgy of the pre-sanctified uh, is preeminent uh, uh, among the devotions uh, during the week uh, that one would practice. And, uh, and so these are the things that we want to be focusing in on and to begin well. And, you know, certainly I think we're 
uh, very fortunate to have you know both the Evergatinos and and St. John Climacus of all people guiding us uh, through the holy season uh, because all these writings will take us exactly where we want to, to go but also be profound reminders of why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Any comments or questions so far on any of the writing or about anything that we've chatted about so far? Okay. From the Gerontacon. Abba Isidore said that novices should love their true teachers as their fathers and fear them as rulers, and that they should never set aside fear out of love or blacken their love with fear. So to keep in balance the nature of that relationship, to have this kind of respect for the, the role that their elders have been given and, the, and uh, to which they have entrusted themselves. And so not to freely and pridefully set aside uh, their demands or what is asked of them, uh, but to keep this in balance with love for their elders as their fathers, that they would be seeking to take up these things by their devotion to them and trust in them, uh, both through the witness that, uh, that they have received through their life, but also the, the relationship that has been cultivated over the course of time, which for many of them, uh, would be over the course of many years, perhaps within a community. And so uh, not to let fear uh, in any way darken that love, which is the more powerful motivator, ultimately in the end, that we would want to have that respect that keeps us uh, moving forward and taking hold of what is asked of us when it is, especially when it's difficult or costly, but love being what allows us to trust in that guidance. And, you know, certainly I think in the desert monks, the elder, the father would, you know, be very much a figure, a Christ figure for them. And, uh, and the elder would, you know, be willing to take upon himself uh, whatever was necessary for the well-being of his disciples. And so if we go back even to that story about St. Benedict and his prayers uh, saving uh, Placidus from the water uh, through, through the obedience of Mars, but nonetheless through his prayer, we, we know that Benedict was a great ascetic. And undoubtedly it was through you know, giving his will over fully to God, that then his disciples able to be saved. Again, you know, in our, certainly in our day and age, it's hard to take hold of this, especially when, you know, so many who have been entrusted with that role of spiritual father uh, to the church have not lived up to it. And in, in many ways, just the opposite. And so uh, for all of us, I think we wanna keep our, our focus upon the saints and uh, upon Christ himself and the church as a whole uh, to guide and direct us in the spiritual 
spiritual life, not to allow ourselves to fall into hopelessness or to feel that uh, we are not uh, being guided in any way. And, uh, you know, I think Christ looks out with a kind of compassion upon those who are like sheep without a shepherd. And one of the reasons he offers himself in the way that he does on the cross, but in the Holy Eucharist as the Lamb of God, uh, he, he makes himself our very nourishment. And in order that we might be able to receive within our very being the, the truth that is proclaimed, that we would never be left shepherdless again, and never left in isolation in the struggles and the crosses that we bear. Uh, but this necessitates on our part a clinging to Christ in the spirit of humble obedience. Any comments or questions so far? Okay. Number two. It was said of John, the disciple of Abba Paul, that he had great obedience. In a neighboring place, there were tombs, and among them, there lived a hyena. The elders saw wild onions growing in that area and told John to go to fetch them some. What should I do about the hyena, Abba? asked John. If it attacks you, replied the elder in jest, tie it up and bring it here. So John went to that place later on toward evening, and lo and behold, the hyena flung itself at him. In accordance with his elder's direction, he rushed to catch it, but the hyena escaped. As he pursued it, John said, my Abba told me to tie you up, and having caught it, he bound it. Meanwhile, the elder was concerned about John's lateness, and he sat outside his cell waiting for him. And behold, along came John, holding the bound hyena. As soon as he saw him, the elder was amazed. However, wanting to humble him, he beat him and said, You dolt, have you brought me a mongrel? The elder untied the animal and let it go. <laughs> Memorable stories. Uh, I don't know why I found myself the whole time thinking of my dog, uh, but I think God has given it to me to, to do precisely this. He's uh, to guide me into a spirit of obedience and because uh, he's constantly leaping at me with his dagger toenails and his sharp little teeth. And, uh, and so uh, in some ways uh, I find myself having to do exactly what uh, poor this poor disciple did every day. Uh, but I think, again, we see, you know, this quick spirit of obedience. And this is what's going to come forward, uh, not only in this hypothesis, but in the coming ones. Uh, a kind of simplicity in the response of the monks as they hear the, the commands of their elders, uh, but a swiftness in the response. And I don't know if you've read ahead, but there's one about uh, a monk, Mark, uh, where his obedience is such that when he's ca called, he jumps up from his desk and the elder takes others in to, to, uh, to see. Not only did he respond immediately, 
when he first hears the word of his elder, but they show that he breaks off, he was writing something and he breaks off mid-letter as soon as he hears the voice of his elder. That's how, how swift his response uh, was. Uh, in many ways, we would be uh, better off if our response was more like an obedient and devoted dog. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a kind of swiftness there, uh, which with which they respond. And sometimes we hear the monks say that, you know, the dogs are better than I am because they act with better, uh, greater devotion and greater swiftness in their obedience. And but this is what we we begin to see in them, that there is this trust, this devotion, this love that leads to this, this kind of obedience here. Uh, even when uh, on the level of personal like sensibilities and safety, there might be a question in one's mind. And certainly going off where you know there's a hyena waiting there uh, just so that you could pick a few onions uh, must have been a test uh, of faith and obedience for this disciple. And then finally, letter number three. The blessed Cerados, who maintained a synobium at Thanatha or Tabatha in Palestine, had a dear friend who had a disciple and who lived in Ascalon or Ashkelon, an ancient seaport in southern Israel. One time during the winter, the elder sent his disciple to Abba Cerados with letters so that he might bring back a cylinder with papyruses. When the disciple entered the Snobium, a shower of driving rain broke out so that the river Thyathos flooded, inundating the entire region. As soon as the disciple had delivered the letters, he immediately asked for the papyruses so that he could depart. Do you not see the rain? The abbot asked him. Where can you go in this weather? But the disciple insisted, saying to the abbot, I have instructions and I cannot stay. When the disciple began to annoy him with his persistence, the abbot gave him the cylinder with the papyruses. The disciple took the abbot's blessing and left. The abbot then said to us, go after him and see what he does at the river. So we followed him. Abba Dorotheos was also with us. We saw that when he reached the river, he took off his clothes and wrapped the sheets of paper in them, and after tying them to his head, turned to us and said, pray for me. He immediately flung himself into that flowing river in which he could scarcely make, we could scarcely make him out. We were expecting him to incur great harm for certain. However, he continued struggling and withstood the current of the river. Finally, being dragged some distance, he reached the opposite bank of the river, and after putting on his clothes, he made a prostration to us and went running to his Abba. So interesting. So, okay, again, you know, if we step back from this and we think to ourselves, in our day-to-day -day life, there are often things that would call us to obedience to Christ. Uh, in regards to our fidelity to prayer, uh, our fidelity in the practice of virtues, and, uh, and 
when we would seek to be faithful to the voice of our master, uh, there are things that can threaten to get in our way, become obstacles. And in, sometimes in our laziness and our negligence, it does not take much to make us break off that obedience. And fasting can be a, a great example of that, uh, or the call to prayer. Uh, but fasting, for example, you know, throughout the season of Lent, you know, there can be uh, many things that come to mind, excuses that may seem very reasonable to us that would lead us to break off the fast or abstaining uh, from certain foods. And uh, we can begin to rationalize and uh, it doesn't take very long for us perhaps to step away from it or to lighten it in some form or fashion, not willing, as we see within this story, uh, a willingness to hold fast to the voice of our master who calls us to himself. And to calls himself, calls us to himself, even through what appear to be or are in reality, great obstacles. And we see here, the obstacle being, you know, what could sweep him away, uh, that he is even warned by other people who are religious, you know, why in the world are you thinking about going out? Who could make such a journey within, you know, this storm? Can't you see that this is a dangerous uh, thing to be doing? And whether those voices come within ourselves, from within ourselves, or from others, or from demons, they can often be come very frequently and speak to us in a very loud and persistent way. You know, stay, do not make that journey, and do not put yourself in jeopardy, you know, by making this particular journey. And for us, it could be the journey of faith journey uh, in the ascetical life, the life of prayer, or in the practice of fasting itself, the willingness to experiment with the fasting of it and to stretch ourselves in the discipline uh, and the, the uh, voice of fear or laziness can rise in our hearts and mimic the voices that we hear related within this story. And yet, what we are called to is, you know, to take hold of what is precious. It's in interesting, you know, he takes all of his clothes off, he strips himself, and ties these uh, uh, papyruses to his head in order to cross the river. And so he protects that which is most precious to his master. And I think if we were to think of this in a more personal way, uh, maybe it would be our virtue and our sensibilities, our mind, our memoration, memory, our imagination, that we would strip ourselves that in the ascetic life from the things that uh, would strengthen us in willfulness or give rise to the passions 
and that we would elevate them above the flood of the times and of the, the voices that would, that would sweep us away and that we would seek the prayers of the, of the saints and of fellow Christians as we make this journey uh, and, uh, and be able to pursue it with courage. And so if we allow ourselves, I think what is being communicated in and through these stories from the fathers speaks to us and speaks to us on a very deep level. Uh, you know, what confronts us is far more challenging than a flooded river. You know, what challenges us is, you know, the movement in our time, you know, the flood of obscenity or the, of materialism or whatever it might be uh, that uh, would seek to afflict us. Th this is what you know, threatens to draw us along. And I think there's a, a voice within us that would, would tell us that to embrace the ascetic life, to live the gospel fully in our day and time, would be to put ourselves in jeopardy, to make ourselves a mockery, uh, even perhaps among other Christians, uh, but to place ourselves in jeopardy in this world. And in some ways, that's all already true. I mean, we live in, you know, what's called the woke generation, you know, to re really to simply to live the gospel or to profess ourselves as Christians uh, can be to place ourselves in jeopardy uh, because people know what Christians believe. And so to acknowledge even that one is a Catholic uh, in a public forum can bring a kind of scorn upon us or could, could prevent us from getting certain jobs that we would desire uh, because you know the, the company or whatever holds to uh, a certain vision of, of reality of life in this world. And so obedience to, again, conscience, the teachings of the gospel to the spirit that dwells within us these are all things that we are, are to cling to. Uh, so we come to the end of that hypothesis. Any final comments or questions? Anything anyone would want to add? Boy, I must be speaking with precision tonight. Right on the mark, nobody has a comment or question. Okay, hypothesis number 35. Uh, the subject uh, in simplicity to our superiors without criticizing, examining, or correcting them. Boy, talk about a hard thing in our day and age. I mean, we uh, are experts at questioning uh, everything that comes along the line, especially, and including questioning God. Uh, you know, what in the world are you doing? Or asking from me. So from, again, St. Gregory the Diologist. The most pious Bishop Fortunatus freed a demoniac by his prayer from the scourge of his demon. The evil spirit had scarcely been expelled from the man when evening already approaching, 
he changed himself into a stranger and fled into the city, running about shouting and saying, oh, look what Bishop Fortunatus has done to me. He threw a stranger out of his cell. So I'm looking for some place to rest and I can find nowhere in this city. A certain man who heard this voice and was sitting with his wife and son beside the fire called to him and asked him what the bishop had done. He then took the demon into his house and bade him sit near the, them by the fire. The evil spirit sat down and while they were talking amongst themselves, entered into the boy and threw him into the fire, killing him instantly. Then that unfortunate man realized whom the bishop had expelled and whom he had welcomed. By his deeds, he was taught not to consider himself better or more charitable than the bishop. So this is an, sort of an odd story. And you know, even after reading it multiple times, uh, it's hard to wrap one's mind around. Uh, but it is this kind of humble obedience that we are called to in the sense of living a life of simplicity and guarding and protecting ourselves from uh, elevating our judgment above the judgment of, of others. And so the bishop cast out a demon. And it might seem to us that there's a kind of unfairness within this story, but if we can just suspend judgment for a moment and say, you know, that here is this demon running through the street uh, saying basically that the bishop had cast him out of his house and left him homeless. And so unwittingly and trusting in his own judgment and his judgment above the bishop and the goodness of the bishop receives this demon into his house, eventually enters into his son and destroys his son. And so again, if we were to step back from this, uh, that we are often willing to elevate our judgment over others and over others who perhaps have a responsibility for us or who have long, long experience within the spiritual life or are living a holy life. And our point of view, our judgment, our opinion uh, can be so strongly held by us that we will set that reality aside and trust in our own judgment only to find ourselves being drawn into something that is very dark. And again, it doesn't take us uh, very long to look at uh, examples, present day examples of this, that even those who are spiritual or known for being spiritual can elevate their own perception of things or the importance of things or what they're doing above that of those who are given responsibility over them and in the process allow themselves uh, to be drawn into something very dark and we have to remember, as we've talked about many times before, that the demons are uh, unresting and observing all things in terms of these kinds of weaknesses that can exist in us. 
the way that we express ourselves, the way that th we write things online, the way that we engage in conversations with others, the willfulness that can exist within us. And they can use this in certain moments to draw us into destruction, where we are so convinced about our judgment of a certain situation or set of circumstances that we fight for it or we pursue a path according to our own judgment, only to find ourselves in a position that is, again, something, you know, is very dark or disordered. And, and uh, you know, in our culture in particular, we elevate private judgment. Uh, and we elevate it to the point that it is something that brings about, you know, great uh, psychological as well as spiritual illness. And uh, it's been so, so elevated that one wonders, how does one find oneself uh, along a path that can form our, our hearts in such a way that we would avoid this. Because think about how subtle it is and how easily this individual was drawn into this situation that was destructive. It's as easy in our lives for something like this to take place where a path that we have been on, a commitment that we've made or something in the spiritual life in general can be undermined in a fraction of a moment because again we too quickly judge something to be true that someone said or that we heard or again you know a, a voice that we heard within us telling us to do the opposite and we might think that was the voice of conscience uh, when in reality it arose from something very dark so in the end, you know, I think even though this story is, is very difficult to understand, I think it, it teaches us something very important. The subtlety, the swiftness of the action of the demons, but also how we can uh, move away uh, from a kind of simplicity in our obedience to those who have a kind of authority over us and even uh, obedience to our conscience on a deeper level that, that would demand that we would examine our thoughts and our feelings and put them to the test, uh, that we will set that aside because there's something within it that we want or that is more in accord with our own will or our passions. These are all very powerful stories, but you can see why it's important to read them slowly and read them over many times and to seek to apply them and to seek the deeper meaning of them. Because I think we could dismiss them as, again, oh, this is hagiography or, you know, you know this sort of exaggerated tale that is being told and we can miss the, tr the deeper truth that is being expressed in it. Any final comments or questions? We've reached 8.30.
believe it or not. And uh, anyone have anything they want to add before we stop for the night? Okay. Obedience, I'm glad we're talking about it. Uh, it's because it's not talked about very often these days. And certainly it's not going to be an eye-catching flyer that you see posted in your church, you know, come to this talk on obedience. And uh, so very important. Okay. When we close there, as always then with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks Thank be to God. God. Thank you all. Have a wonderful beginning of